All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer together, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you for your word. And uh, Lord, we come before you now with humble hearts and we submit ourselves before you and before your word and we pray that you would teach us. Father, we ask for your help as we hear your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, to really hear, not just to understand, but to embrace it by faith. We pray that you give us eyes to see. And Lord, we pray that we would be changed as we consider your perfect word. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, we are in the latter part of a series through the book of Acts. And as we're in this latter stage of the book of Acts, we know that Paul has completed three missionary journeys. And now what we've seen is in chapters 21 to 23, uh, Paul arrives in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem. And it's there that he is falsely accused, that he's almost killed and then imprisoned. And then after chapters 21 to 23, we come to our current passage this morning and then the chapters that follow. In chapters 24 to 26, we see that Paul, because uh, there's a real threat to his life in Jerusalem, he is transported to the city of Caesarea. And it's in Caesarea that Paul has to give testimony for his life and for his ministry before three significant government officials, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And then finally, as we'll consider in the weeks to come in Acts 27 and 28, as we wrap up the book of Acts, we'll see the short account of Paul's journey and stay in Rome. So Jerusalem to now Caesarea, where we're going to consider Paul's trial before the governor Felix, and then later on to Rome. But as we consider Paul's trial before the governor of Judea, who is Felix, here in our passage in chapter 24, I should say a word about who Felix was. So a little bit about Felix. Felix was a wicked man. Actually, before he became the governor of Judea, he was a slave. But under Claudius, he had become a freed man and then through a number of events had risen in power until he was awarded the governorship of Judah. Now, his reign as governor of Judah was marked by dishonesty, by corruption, and perversion. Actually, at this point, when Paul comes before him, Felix's wife was a teenager whom he had stolen from another king. On a number of occasions as well, in Felix's reign as governor of Judah, he had acted with unmeasured brutality to squelch various rebellions and uprisings. And finally, now this would have happened after Paul stood before him to give a defense for his life in ministry, but finally, due to his bad behavior, Nero, who if you know something about Roman history, was no saint himself, right? Nero removed Felix from his post, and actually at that point, Felix would have been executed had not his brother been at Rome at the time and pled for his life. So Felix was a bad dude, okay? He was not a good guy. And the Jews feared him and they loathed him. This is the man before whom Paul will stand trial. However, as we read the interaction between these two men in our text, it becomes apparent that Felix must pass judgment on a far greater matter than simply whether Paul is guilty or not guilty regarding the accusations that are made against him. 
The Apostle Paul, in fact, in making his defense, lays before the governor the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Felix must judge and determine who Jesus is. This is the greater, the greater verdict that Felix must determine. The tragedy, too, that we will see in our text is that Felix gets it wrong. The tragedy is the missed opportunity that's represented in our passage. That a man who was so obviously and desperately in need of the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ was repeatedly presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet walked away an unchanged man. My prayer for each one of us this morning is that we would learn from the tragedy of Felix's life and that we would not make the same mistake. You know, you may be here this morning and perhaps you'd say, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. Or maybe you'd say just very honestly, I know I'm not a Christian. I don't think I believe what's presented here in the Bible regarding the person of Jesus and how you can have salvation in him. But maybe for some time, if you fit into that category, maybe for some time you've been wrestling with these claims about Jesus. You've been wrestling with, with who Jesus is and, and, and what his life and ministry and work was all about. And in some ways, even though you say, I'm not sure I believe it or I don't believe it, it's strangely appealing to you. And my prayer for you this morning is that as, you, as we consider what happens in Felix's life here, that you would learn from the tragedy that took place in his life and that even this morning, it might be the first time that you turn from your sins and trust in Christ as Savior. That can happen this morning, right now. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for many years, but you know that there are patterns of sin in your life. Perhaps even another brother or sister in Christ has come to you and addressed these things out of love and concern for you, and yet you've been reluctant, reluctant to relinquish those old patterns of sin that are destructive in your life and to follow Christ in complete obedience. We also, if you find yourself in that situation, you also have something to learn from the example of Felix here. And may this be a morning that you would not delay one more time, one more time to repent of that sin and to embrace the forgiveness and life that is in Christ. But even this moment, in these moments this morning, may you turn from your sins, forsaking the old patterns of sin and embracing Christ and the joy that he offers you. With that in mind, I want us to consider our passage this morning in three parts. First, the case. Secondly, the defense. And third, the verdict. Okay, so those are the three points this morning. The case, the defense, and the verdict. First of all, there is a case that is made against the Apostle Paul. We find this in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4, 24. Look there in verse 1 and we read, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. 
The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. All right, so right away we see who Paul's accusers are. You see there initially Ananias in verse 1. He was the high priest in Jerusalem and a leading member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the most powerful political and religious body uh, in Jewish life in that day. And so Ananias, with some of the elders, uh, traveled to Caesarea to bring accusations against Paul. And then you notice in the text as well that there's this man, Tertullus. There in verse 1, he's identified as a spokesman. Essentially, he would be a professional lawyer. And so it was Tertullus that was actually the voice for Ananias and the Sanhedrin. He was actually bringing the case against Paul. And the case that is brought against Paul could essentially be summarized in three charges. The first charge is that Paul is a rebel rouser. You see that in verse 5. And now this was a serious accusation because one of Felix's primary responsibilities was to, under Roman rule, Felix was given the responsibility to maintain peace and order in the region which he had responsibility. Actually, Tertullus begins by praising Felix, recognizing this. Tertullus begins by praising Felix for the peace that they enjoyed under his leadership. And Felix had taken this responsibility so seriously that we know from past events that Felix had used fierce brutality to squelch previous insurrections and rebellions that had risen up in his region. So this idea that Paul was a rebel rouser was a serious Serious accusation because it threatened the peace of the region. A second accusation that's brought against Paul is that he's a religious ringleader. You see that he's identified there by Tertullus as a leader of a sect of the Nazarenes. We know that Jesus was a Nazarene, and that's why they refer to him as a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And this word leader here actually has negative connotations. It's actually translated there in the ESV as a ringleader. It's the idea of a religious fanatic. And, and the idea here is that his fanaticism is causing this disturbance, this disruption in the area. And then finally, the third charge is that Paul is a blasphemer. You see it there in verse 6 as they accuse him of profaning the temple. Now, this is clearly a reference back to something that took place in uh, chapter 21, where Paul went to Jerusalem, and he, Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, and so Paul spent a lot of time with Gentiles, and he was in the city with a Gentile named Trophimus. And some of the Jews there who already had suspicions about the Apostle Paul assumed that because he was with a Gentile in the city, and because he had been worshiping at the temple, that Paul must have brought this Gentile into the temple, into the inner courts of the temple, and profaned the temple. And that's quite conjecture, but they presumed this to be the case. They didn't have, and you can go back and read the account, they supposed it to be the case. They didn't have any evidence for it. But nonetheless, this is the accusation that was made against Paul, that he was blaspheming God, blaspheming the temple by bringing Gentiles into parts of the temple that they were not allowed. So if we were to summarize the accusations here made against the Apostle Paul, the idea is that Paul is a religious fanatic who has blasphemed the Jewish temple and is guilty of stirring up controversy, disorder, and chaos in the empire. Now, the second thing we see in our text, if, those are, if that's the case that's made against Paul, then we see his defense in verses 10 through 21. Look there in verse 10 and we read these words. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. 
You can verify that it is more than that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So what we see in these verses is essentially Paul is responding to each of the charges that has been made against him. So there's three charges, and now Paul responds and uh, provides three responses. For the first response is found in verses 11 to 13. This is in response to the charge that he is a rebel rouser. And essentially here, Paul says that his time in Jerusalem, it's evident His time in Jerusalem was not marked by inciting riots. He was not lecturing or disputing in the temple or the synagogue or the city. But no, he was there rather to peacefully worship God. His second response is found in verses 14 to 16. And this is in response to the charge that's made that he's a religious ringleader. And in so many words, what Paul says in these verses is, Look, I in fact share in many ways a common faith with my accusers. You notice he says there, I worship the God of our fathers. I believe everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. In other words, Paul says, in relationship to my accusers, we worship the same God, we affirm the same scriptures, we share the same hope, and we are pursuing the same goal. I am not a ringleader of a cult, but I am a follower of the way, which is the fulfillment of all God's promises revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Now listen, this is a significant and powerful testimony to the veracity of the Christian faith. And just in case you missed it, I want to to just pause here for a moment to make this point. If, If you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're not sure what to think about the Bible and about the claims that it makes regarding the person of Jesus. This is a powerful testimony to the veracity of the Christian faith. John Stott, who's a New Testament scholar, wrote, quote, Paul was not an inventor, therefore, but loyal to the ancestral faith, nor was he a sectarian or heretical deviant, for he stood squarely in in mainstream Judaism, end of quote. The point point being made here by Paul, and then Stott points it out here as well, is that Christianity was far more than just an upstart religion that that came up in the first century A.D. You see, some people might think of Christianity in that way. That Jesus came on the scene and boom, Christianity started taking off and people started believing in Jesus and following him. No, Christianity has far, far deeper roots than that. And that's the point that Paul is making here then in fact, Christianity has deep roots in the Old Testament scriptures. And if you search the Old Testament scriptures, the most ancient manuscripts that we have in human history, you will find that 
in texts that were written hundreds and even thousands of years prior to Jesus ever coming on the scene. They contained consistent, deep, and beautiful images and patterns and prophecies of Jesus that are spoken of him over and over and over again. Christianity is not just an upstart religion, but the most ancient historical documents that we have in human history spoke of him repeatedly and of his coming. And he is the fulfillment of those documents. A third response from the Apostle Paul is found in verses 17 to 21. This is in reference to the charge that's made against him that he is a blasphemer. And Paul essentially says here that his purpose in Jerusalem was not to defile or to desecrate the temple, but instead his purpose was to offer, to present an offering to his fellow Jews and to worship God in the temple. And when his accusers find him, Paul says he was doing exactly that. That he had not gathered a crowd, he had not incited a mob, but in fact the mob was formed as a result of his accusers' actions and not his own. And then he does make a concession. The one thing they might find against him, the one charge that they might honestly bring against him is that there may be a disagreement between them regarding the resurrection of the dead and this being a theological difference which would have no bearing upon what Felix would determine it was his fate. So, all of that to say, those first two points are really to set the stage now for Felix's verdict. Okay, so we've seen the case that is made against Paul. We've seen his defense um, in regards to the accusations that are made against him. And now, let's consider in verses 22 to 27, Felix's verdict. And when we look at these verses here, what I want us to see is, I believe, a remarkable case study regarding the psychology of unbelief. Okay? So look here in verse 22. We read, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, so the accusations have been made, the defense has been offered on the case of the Apostle Paul, and now Felix must issue a verdict. And what becomes clear in our text, and we see this as we press deeper into it, is that the ultimate verdict Felix must issue is not what he will do with Paul, but what he will do with Jesus. We learn here initially in verses 22 to 23 that Felix possessed a rather accurate knowledge of the way. And that makes sense because he was the governor of Judea, which Jerusalem was in this region. And Jerusalem was the city from which uh, the apostle Peter preached the first Christian uh, sermon. And 3,000 souls were converted and the Christian church was established. And so uh, Felix, being a ruler in this area, had heard of this gospel. He had heard of this church. He had heard of what was happening in these early days regarding Christianity. And at one level, he understood it, right? 
And I think we have to say that it's not just something, given what Luke says here, that he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. It's not just something that Felix just had kind of a general knowledge of, but surely Felix would have understood that these Christians believed this Jesus to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, to be the promised Messiah, to be the Savior of the world. And now Paul, one of the significant, most significant leaders in the Christian church, is before him and is bearing witness and testifying to this gospel. And what does Felix do with it? What is his first response? Well, you see his first response is indecision, right? He refuses to make a decision. He refuses to take action regarding this message. It says there in the text, Luke records, that Felix put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Now, it is obvious here that Felix is just buying time. He says he wants to wait on Lysias, but we know who Lysias was. Lysias, if you go back and read the account in earlier chapters in the book of Acts, Lysias was a tribune that had saved Paul's life when the mob was trying to kill him in Jerusalem. And Lysias had actually written a letter to Felix. You can go back to chapter 23, uh, verse 29, and Lysias wrote this regarding the apostle Paul. He writes to Felix, sending Paul along to Felix. He says, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. You see, Lysias has already issued his verdict. Lysias has already determined that Paul is an innocent man and should be set free. Felix is simply stalling. He's buying time. And no doubt we notice here that Felix is polite in doing so. In verse 23, we see that he gives orders that Paul be kept in protective custody, be treated with, with freedom, and he can enjoy visitors and friends. But still, nonetheless, it is indecision. He refused ultimately to make a decision. He leaves Paul in prison, and Felix remains unchanged by the gospel. It is increasingly apparent as we press further in this passage that what's really taking place here is that Felix is not being indecisive about Paul, but he's being indecisive about the gospel. James Boyce writes regarding what's taking place here, quote, the real tragedy of his life was not that he postponed making a judgment about Paul in regards to the Sanhedrin's accusations, but that he postponed that far more serious matter of making a decision concerning Jesus Christ, end of quote. And the thing, as we think about Felix's indecision here regarding the gospel, the thing about indecision is that indecision really is a decision, right? When there's no decision, that really is a decision. I mean, consider it. Am I going to ask her to marry me? Do we buy this house or not? Do I take this job? Am I going to give to this cause? Will I help this person in need? Any of those situations that you might find yourself in, if you finally refuse to make a decision, then your decision has already been made. You've already decided to reject the possibility or opportunity that is before you. We might do that politely, we might do that respectfully, but nonetheless, the decision has been made. And the tragedy in Felix's life here and the tragedy in so many people's lives as they come to the claims of Christ or my friends, even as we think about this as Christians, as we come to a crossroads where we see clear areas where God is calling us to repentance and calling us to life in him, when we refuse to make a decision, when we put it off, when we give excuses, when we say, oh, I'll decide that another day, 
we really are, in fact, making a decision, right? And that's what we see with Felix. We see an unwillingness to act upon the gospel, an unwillingness to respond, an unwillingness to accept, an unwillingness to believe and to trust and to follow. Now, there are several other responses that flow out of this, out of this indecision as we follow Felix through this process, but they all really follow, flow out of this initial decision of indecision, a refusal to make a judgment regarding Paul and Jesus. But let's follow him a little bit further along as he's indecisive at first, but then you notice in verse 24 as we're following this kind of psychology of unbelief, he's indecisive, but notice in verse 24, he still has an interest though. He's continued to, he continues to be interested in this Paul and in this gospel at some level, at least so much so to the extent that he invites his wife to listen and to join in to learn more about this Jesus. You see, his wife there is identified as Drusilla. It's helpful to know something about who she was. Drusilla came from a powerful political family. From historical accounts, we know that she was beautiful. And Felix had seduced her from her rightful husband. This, in fact, was Felix's third wife. And so this is the politically powerful and morally corrupt couple that Paul now has the opportunity to present his case before, to present the gospel. And in the midst of, of Felix, Luke recording Felix wrestling with all this, his indecision, but yet this, he's strangely drawn to this gospel, strangely drawn to this message, and Felix wrestling with this, Luke also inserts then the message that Paul is proclaiming to Felix, Felix and Drusilla. And what is that message? What would Paul preach to them? What would Paul say to them? I mean, think about this, this politically and, mo and morally corrupt couple. And I mean, Felix, like I said before, he was a bad dude. Felix did not like to be challenged. What is it that Paul will say to him? What will he choose to be his topic, his text? Maybe, maybe, a, maybe a good message would be your best life now, you know? <laughs> Felix, you know what your problem is? You're just not really believing the promises of God. If you just believe the promises of God, you could be more rich and more happy and more blessed than you'd ever be. The sky's the limit, Felix. But that's not what he preaches, is it? Rather, look there in verse 24, and we see that the message that Paul brings to Felix is faith in Jesus Christ, reasoning about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Wow. Is that what you would have chosen? One of the things we see here is we think about Felix and, 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 and what he's wrestling with in the psychology of unbelief is if we come at it from the other angle, right? Okay, the individual that's going to present the gospel, the individual that has the responsibility to bear the gospel down upon his heart, what we see here in this text from the example of the Apostle Paul is the need for courage in gospel ministry. The need for courage in gospel ministry. As you see there in verse 24, Felix was alarmed as a result of Paul's message. And there's a reason why he was alarmed, because Paul had the boldness and the love to apply the gospel to his heart in the difficult places. Oftentimes people are not alarmed by our gospels, perhaps. They're not alarmed by our gospel because we're not willing to press the gospel into the particulars of their lives. 
Paul did that, though. And notice the particulars of what Paul had to say to Felix. He spoke to him about faith in Jesus Christ. We know that Paul must have used the Old Testament scriptures to do this, to build his case that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, that he was the Messiah, to speak of him, of his life and death and resurrection, and to urge Felix. I mean, you could imagine Felix is a bad dude, right? Felix is immoral. Felix is politically corrupt. But Paul surely would have borne witness to his own life and said, listen, Felix, listen, there's grace, there's mercy for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you've lived. I killed Christians and Jesus saved me. Believe and trust in this Jesus and he will save you. He spoke to him about righteousness. Paul must have spoken to Felix about the perfect standard of God's righteousness, that God always does what is right. He never does what is wrong. And if we're to know him and we're to walk with him and we're to have a relationship with God, we must be righteous as he is righteous. But then Paul, surely, as we know his other writings, Paul would have spoken to Felix about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That although we can never attain the righteousness of God, God has provided a righteousness that is not our own. The perfect righteousness of Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, that he became sin on our behalf, taking all our sin on the cross. And then if we believe and trust in him, he grants to us his perfect record of righteousness so that when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son and not our sin, and we are fully accepted and received. Paul spoke to Felix about self-control. Again, Paul knew his audience, right? Felix and Drusilla were not the epitome of self-control. You know, you don't look up self-control in the dictionary and find their faces there. And so Paul spoke to them about the virtues of self-control, that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And by faith in Jesus and by the the dwelling, dwelling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they might be delivered from their unruly passions and know the freedom and joy of self-control. And then Paul spoke to them of coming judgment. Surely Paul would have spoken to them of this reality that Jesus, who came as a humble servant to die for the sins of his people, would one day come again as a conquering king and that everyone would stand before him and give an account, including the government officials of that day. Essentially, Paul preached the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. That through faith in Jesus, they could be made right before God, have victory over sin, and be prepared for the coming day of judgment. Now, notice Felix's response in verses 25 to 27. After hearing more, how did Felix respond? Well, you see there in verse 25, he's alarmed. Most translations, that's rather a timid translation of this word, I think, because most translations translate it fearful or afraid. The King James Version actually translates it terrified. Okay? So he's hearing this message of faith in Jesus and and righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. And he's kind of strangely drawn to it, but he's also scared. And listen... That's not necessarily a bad response. In many ways, it's an appropriate response. Felix must have understood that based on Paul's understanding of the Scriptures, he was an unrighteous sinner, and he would face certain judgment apart from faith in Jesus Christ. 
And given that reality, given that reality, fear is an appropriate response. It's not tragic that Felix is fearful in our text, but it's tragic what he does with his fear. Instead of allowing that fear to drive him to Christ for safety and forgiveness and shelter and comfort and protection and salvation, he rejects Christ and he denies him. You know, we're taught to fear many things in our own society. We're taught to fear liberalism, right-wing conspiracies, global warming, ISIS, smoking, junk food, high gas prices, but fear God never. That's unthinkable. That's psychological abuse. It's ridiculous, right? No, there's an appropriate fear of God. When we think of God's righteousness and judgment, But listen, that fear can become destructive and overwhelming if we don't allow it to play its proper function and drive us to the safety and protection that there is in Christ. So he's fearful. He's then dismissive, you see, in verse 25. We're going through this psychology of unbelief. Notice there, he's fearful, and his fearfulness leads to dismissiveness. His conscience was bearing witness in his own heart. He must have sensed some guilt for the brutality that he inflicted on others, for the dishonesty in his life that marked his rule, for the deception that he had been involved in in stealing another man's wife. But he didn't want to deal with those things. It was easier to deny them rather than to face them. And so he dismisses the Apostle Paul. He says, go away for the present. Once again, refusing to make a decision. And he says, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He puts it off for another day. So he's fearful and then dismissive. Notice he's selfish as well in verse 26. At the same time that Felix is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and strangely being drawn to this message that disturbs him, he is plotting and scheming how he might use this interest that he has in the gospel for his own gain. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent him off. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Felix thought to himself, maybe this old preacher who is in a bind will give me a little something on the side. So I'll let him go. And here we see that that even as he's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he's using the gospel, right, for his own selfish ends and means. Jesus has become a ticket for his own personal gain and selfish ambition. Notice also, though, that he's quite talkative. So he's fearful, he's dismissive, he's selfish. He's also talkative about spiritual things. Consider, based on verse 26, where it says that he sent for him often and conversed with him when two years had elapsed to verse 27. How many times, if there was two years... And he sent for him often to converse with him about these things. How often do you think Felix talked with Paul about his soul? Ten times? Twenty times? Thirty times? Fifty times? Over and over again, he spoke with the Apostle Paul about these things. It reminds me, I don't know how many of you know of the piece of Christian literature that um, it's actually, as I understand it, the most sold piece of literature outside of the Bible in the history of the world is Pilgrim's Progress, okay? And so Pilgrim's Progress is written by John Bunyan. It's a famous Christian classic. And in this 
um, class, Christian classic, uh, Bunyan paints a picture of two individuals, Christian and faithful, and they are on their way to the celestial city, but they have to stay on the path. They have to stay on the road to arrive at the celestial city. And they meet these individuals all along the way that are trying to make their way to the city or trying to move them off the path. And one of the individuals that they meet, his name is Talkative. And Talkative demonstrated a great deal of knowledge about spiritual things. And he loved to talk about spiritual things, but Christian then began to discern that Talkative was just like his father, Saywell. That he loved to talk about spiritual things, but in the end, he was unaffected and unchanged by spiritual discourse. Oh, my friends, how tragic it is that there are so many people who love to speak about spiritual things, even to talk about the Bible, even to talk about morality and the things that the Scriptures teach us regarding the person and the work of Jesus, and yet they talk and talk and talk about spiritual things and moral things, yet never be changed by the gospel. Friends, does that characterize you? Felix loved to talk about spiritual things, at least in this season of his life, but it never finally changed him. And then you see finally in verse 27, he's fearful, he's dismissive, he's selfish, he's talkative, but in verse 27, it's over. After all the explaining and talking and conversing with Felix, when Felix leaves his post... He finally had to make a decision, and he walked away from it. The gospel had interested him, it had shaken him, it had disturbed him, it had appealed to him in one sense, but finally when it was time to decide, he walked away unchanged. He chose rather to receive the praise of the Jews by offering them a political favor and leaving Paul in prison, and walked away from this gospel, and walked away from the hope that Paul was offering him in Christ. How many people, how many people put off a decision for Christ to never finally make it? Oftentimes expressing good intentions, right? I just need more information. I need a little more time. I have a little bit more life to live. I have more dreams to pursue. Then I'll decide, but then never comes. And it is true, and, and you can hear the account of individuals, and it's, it's interesting to hear how God saves different people. It is true that for some, conversion and their experience of coming to faith in Christ takes place over time as the gospel seeps down into their minds and their hearts and it finally captures them. And it's true, and oftentimes God saves individuals like that, and I don't want to belittle that in any way, but it's also true, and this is the danger that we need to be concerned about. It is also true that for many people, time does not soften their hearts, but it only makes it grow more cold and indifferent and hardened. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've had the thought or the mentality, I've made it this far without Christ, I'm doing pretty good. So just a little more time, just a little more time, little more time to consider, little more time to get things in order. And then maybe I'll make that decision. The danger is that that time would never come. And based on our text this morning, we are warned to not ever deceive ourselves into thinking that feeling bad about our sin is to be equated with repentance or thinking about and considering the claims of Christ can be substituted for actually believing 
in Jesus and following him. So I think about the tragedy of Felix here in this passage. It reminds me of another individual and example that's given to us in Scripture, and that's the thief on the cross. You know, individuals couldn't be any more different. Felix was a man of power and strength and had political clout. The thief on the cross, he had no power. It had been all stripped from him. He was nailed to a cross. He had no control over his destiny. And Felix, being a powerful man, this this man, he was on the brink of death. But the way in which he was so different from Felix is that he was desperate, right? He was desperate. And so the man on the cross did the one thing that Felix could never bring himself to do. He simply cried out for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's all it took. One step to Jesus, and he comes running. Today, you will be with me in paradise. My friends, if you've been considering taking that step for some time, but have delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed, do not delay any longer. Take that step towards Christ. Remember me. Forgive me. Save me. And he will rescue you. Let's pray. Father, what we've been talking about is nothing less than a miracle. In many ways, it was so easy what Felix had to do, just simply call out for mercy. And yet, Father, we know that our hard and unbelieving hearts will never do that apart from the work of your Spirit. So what we're asking you to do in these moments is a miracle. Grant new life. Father, for those who have delayed for some time, I pray that even in these moments, even now, for the first time, they would believe, trust, reach out, grab hold of Christ, and follow Him as Lord. Oh God, do that for Your glory. And Father, for those of us who may be holding on to patterns of sin for some time that are destructive to our lives, even though we're professing faith in Jesus, Lord, help us as well to not delay any longer, to know the full joy there is in repentance and to turn from our sins and to follow with all our hearts. God, come and do that in our hearts for your glory. Save us from the tragedy that befell Felix. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.